Do you rely on negative self-talk for motivation? You know, most high-achieving perfectionists are unknowingly driven by a fear of failure. We think that we have to do good in order to be good because worthiness is something you earn, right? Because we're conditioned at an early age to avoid punishment and chase rewards and the voices of judgment and criticism are so deeply ingrained in our psyche that we don't even notice the stream of verbal abuse that creates a constant state of threat in our nervous system, which means we misinterpret external circumstances as the source of our anxiety and stress and exhaust ourselves trying to make the outside world meet our subconscious standards. But even when we succeed, the relief is only temporary because the definition of good enough is always changing. And the solution is to learn how to manage your mind, stop the negative self-talk so you can feel safe and secure in your body with yourself, which in turn makes you more resilient and more capable of handling the problems in everyday life. My guest today is here to talk about mindfulness. Dr. Michelle Maidenberg is an adjunct faculty member at New York University, where she teaches a graduate course in mindfulness practice. She's also a contributor for Psychology Today and has a TED Talk called Circumventing Emotional Avoidance. She's the author of several books, including her latest, Ace Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self, and Live the Life You Want. You'll walk away from this episode with a clear understanding of what most people get wrong about mindfulness and how to know if you're doing it right. We discuss the difference between mindfulness and meditation and how mindfulness actually causes structural changes in the brain that slow the aging process. We also discuss the nervous system and why you shouldn't make decisions when you are hyper or hypo aroused. And she's going to leave you with some easy and simple mindfulness practices that quickly restore your personal power, no matter what's going on around you. So stay tuned for episode 111 of the It's Not About the Alcohol podcast. My name is Colleen Cashman. I'm a sober-ish recovery coach, helping high-achieving women get emotionally sober so that drinking less or not at all feels like a superpower. Join me each week for evidence-based holistic strategies to regulate your brain chemistry and nervous system and also develop a growth mindset so you can feel proud, confident, and resilient with or without a drink in your hand because it's not about the alcohol. Before we jump into my interview with Dr. Michelle Maidenberg, I just want to say that if I had to boil down the one component that has restored my mental health and given me the tools to transform my life, it's mindfulness. Learning how to manage your mind is literally a superpower. We're raised our entire life to think that managing our behavior is where it's at which is why we assume when we overdrink or overeat that the solution is to change our behavior. But trying to change your behavior without first changing your mind is an exercise in futility because your conscious intentions 
only account for about 5% of all of your behavior. We can only focus on one thing at a time, which is why 95% of your behaviors are automated. They're habitual. And that's why you can decide that you don't want to drink or you only want to have one drink or two drinks or only drink on the weekend or whatever your goal is. And you can be sincere and want that so much. But if you don't address the subconscious beliefs that drive the behavior, the minute you're not paying attention or you get a little intoxicated or you're stressed or distracted or whatever it is, your subconscious takes over. That's the way the brain works. And believe it or not, the brain is a tool and reprogramming it is a skill. And that's what I teach in the next chapter which is my group coaching program for women who have suffered or are suffering from alcohol use disorder. Believe it or not, alcohol use disorder, which just means that you are drinking more than you think you should, alcohol use disorder is a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. The diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 says nothing about how much you drink being a qualifier for the disorder which is why it's so crazy to try to fix the disorder by changing how much you drink. I teach the frameworks and the skills you need to change how you think. And so if you're ready to stop beating yourself up and worrying that you'll always have to worry about over drinking, pause this episode and get into the show notes to register for my free masterclass this Thursday to learn how to use my seven core principles of emotional sobriety to overcome alcohol use disorder. And when you sign up, you're going to get immediate access to part one of the training, which is the five thinking habits that turn normal drinkers into overdrinkers. I also give you a bonus workbook with extra resources so you can walk away from this class with a brand new perspective on how to use mindfulness and self-compassion and non-judgment and set realistic expectations for changing your mind. Because if you want to be able to drink and not drink like a normal person, you're going to have to learn how to think like a normal person. And as long as you're telling yourself a story that you can't stop once you start or that you always drink more than other people, or it's only a matter of time before you end up back in your old ways, then those things are going to be true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And while emotional sobriety isn't a quick fix, it's a permanent fix. You'll never have to start over again. So I hope to see you in the masterclass. And now let's dive into this episode with Dr. Michelle Maidenberg on mindfulness. Dr. Michelle Maidenberg, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation, looking forward to your new book. Would you introduce yourself to my audience so they can get a, a, a feel for who you are? Yes. And so nice to meet you. And thank you for having me on, of course. Yeah. So I have a private practice in Harrison, New York, and most of my work is really foundationally, I do CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, something called ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's more of a third wave of CBT. And it also is mindfulness-based, which is really important to me. I do a lot of mindfulness-based you know, treatments. I also do something called EMDR, which is eye movement Yes, you know what it is, <laughs> desensitization, reprocessing. And again, if you look at the, I don't know if you could see, but there's a, a, a light bar behind me. I use that when I do my EMDR. I also use a lot of polyvagal theory, which is a little bit 
you know, newer methodology and we work somatically with our bodies. So it's a real mind body approach, you know, that I practice. So it's really a culmination of different, you know, therapies and of course a mix of my own, you know, and that's where ACE comes in my, you know, my new method that I came up with. Yeah. I teach at NYU in the spring semester. I actually teach a 15 week course in mindfulness. So you can imagine how much material there is on mindfulness, a ton, ton. Um, I'm a Psychology Today blogger, and I have about a readership of about 1.7 million readers up to this point, which I'm so proud of. Um, and then I also, every Thursdays at 11 a.m., I publish on YouTube a guided meditation. I do a lot of other things, too. <laughs> we could be here all day. The only other thing I yeah. do want to mention is I do have a nonprofit which is called Through My Eyes, and it offers free clinically guided videotaping for chronically medically ill individuals who want to leave a video legacy for their children and loved ones. So that's touching. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And we've done over 300 videos at this point. Oh, wow. What a gift. What a gift. I would love to start with mindfulness, kind of a broad overview. And I want to start in like the beginner's chair. I think most people would think that they are mindful. I have always considered myself a mindful person, only to look back and realize how asleep I was. Can you talk about what it means to be mindful and how to know if and when you are being mindful versus when you're not? What is what is it? First of all, it's a great question. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of misperceptions and misunderstanding of what mindfulness is. And it's amazing because I teach, I think I, I told you, I teach this class at, at NYU. And, you know, when, when we open up the class, you know, you know, I go around the room and I have people kind of speaking to what they want to learn in the class, what they know, you know, what their foundational knowledge on mindfulness is. And I get the same exact feedback. They're like, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I know it's good for me. And I know I should learn it. And I know I could use it with my patients, you know, my clients, because it's a graduate course. But I don't know where to start. I don't know how to integrate it, et cetera. And by, like I said, I teach it for 15 weeks. That's a long time. And there are two-hour classes. <laughs> so I teach them, you know, all different ways to integrate it into both for them personally and in their practice when they're working with clients. So what is it? So you probably have heard of meditative practice because everybody's heard of that too. So people are like, what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? So meditation is a type of mindfulness. It's a type of practice. So under the umbrella of mindfulness, there's thousands and thousands of different practices that you could do in order to fortify mindfulness. What is mindfulness in a nutshell? You know, and again, there's so many definitions of it, of course. You know, John Kabat-Zinn is known, you know, most profoundly for his definition of mindfulness, which is really creating space, um, you know, and again, it's non-judgmentally and on purpose. And that's how he, you know, puts it. What I always say, which helps people understand it better, it's creating space between the thinking and the doing. Because most people, including myself, we have very impulsive behaviors. And when I ask people, what happened in between when you thought that and when you did it, they'll argue with me, literally. They'll say, what do you mean? I thought I want to have that piece of cake. And before I knew it, the cake was in my mouth. I didn't think anything. It, it was like a two-second thing. There was nothing I could do about it. And I go, whoa, let's slow down a little bit. 
Let's take a minute. Did you have any thoughts? You know what? Not such a good idea to have that piece of cake because you know what? I ate a really hearty dinner and I'm actually full in my body. I feel full. I consumed enough calories today. I don't really want that. It's an ex it's extra that I don't need in my body at this moment. Or I'll eat a little less tomorrow, you know, if I have this. Or it's not so bad because I could have worse, you know, and I could go on and on of the rationalizations and the different messages that kind of filter through our mind that we don't pay attention to. We ignore, we distract from, you know, we deny. And then when I say that, I said, so did you have any thoughts? And then people inevitably will be like, well, <laughs> I was thinking that I'll work out twice the amount that I'll work out, that I worked out today, I'll work out tomorrow because I had three pieces of cake or whatever the case is. You know, I'm like, uh -huh. yeah, but what did you do with that thought? wasn't paying attention, didn't realize it was there. And I also was ignoring it. You know, when we really kind of take the time. Now, the beauty with mindfulness is we're talking about changes in our neural networks and our physical brain structure. And that's the most fascinating part of it that is, that is absolutely mind-blowing. So years ago, we did not have the advanced technology we have today. We didn't know whether there was changes in the brain, we didn't know where there was change in the brain, we didn't know how the brain changes. Now we actually see the structural changes and we see that over time, as we age, there's depletion in the gray matter of our brain, which, you know, what is that? How does that impact us? Our memory, our ability to focus, etc. As you age, it depletes. And if you do mindfulness training, if you do meditative practice mindfulness training, what we see over time is it actually replenishes the gray matter in our brain. So if you, the physiologically, it decreases our aging, which is amazing, right? Because we have this accelerated growth in our brain structure and it slows down the process. Okay. And anything that we could do to slow down the process of our aging in our brain is incredible. And here we see again, definitively with research, with these scans, that there is this structural change. So the idea of slowing down aging is very out there in terms of goals. You know, yeah. my podcast, we, I have a, most of my audience is familiar with an alcohol addiction on some level of the spectrum. And of course, we all know that you would probably have better skin and hair if you weren't drinking so much, but it is this long-term versus short-term mm -hmm. urge. Yes. And this, the stories we tell ourselves of, I I'll get better in January, or I'm mm -hmm. not going to worry about it right now. Or with the cake, I'm just going to eat the cake and then I'll mm -hmm. work out a little extra tomorrow. So we tell ourselves these things. How does mindfulness mm -hmm. change or yes. interrupt Behavior. that Behavior. and give us a different way of decision-making? Yes. Great question. So when I say that there's space between the thinking and the doing, it's the impulsivity. It's the impulsivity. So when you have an addiction, you know, when there's an addiction, right, you have the, the thought that comes into your mind, right, whether it's habitual, right, because every time after dinner, I have a drink, 
much. It could be habitual. Or before. Or before before and after or (laughs) et cetera. Exactly. So it's both that. It's the habit. It's creating space so that there's more room to include other more adaptive and healthy behaviors. It's in the noticing. It's actually noticing that you're having the thoughts because that is, we know, the first step to changing behaviors. We have to notice. So you are actually, in, you're becoming more in tune with yourself. You're having more conscious awareness in the present moment, what's going on for you. So you'll be in tune with your body because when we have a craving for alcohol, drugs, anything, we have both a physiological response that happens in our body, okay? We may have a rapid heart rate. We may have all these different kinds of things that are happening as we are having that craving. We have the thoughts, right? We may perseverate over the thoughts. I have to have it now. I have to have it now. I have to have it now. And we can't get that out of our minds. It may be in the habit, like I said, right? Which is, again, accelerates both of those things that I just spoke about. And also in the behavior in and of itself. So it's in the reward and punishment, right? Kind of dualistic kind of spiral that we get ourselves in, where we might reward our behavior, etc. It could also be, again, a lot of times with drinking and using other types of substances or any types of behavior is also kind of an adaptation, right? So maybe we were, maybe, you know, you were feeling very anxious and the way to, let's say, diminish or decrease the anxiety was to have some alcohol or you had social anxiety, And the way to engage with others and lower your inhibitions was to have alcohol or whatever the case is. So you're becoming more in tune with that and connecting to that so that when you're actually behaving, which is the most important part of this, that you're taking the pause and you have, you recognize that you have a choice. Mm. But if you don't have that space, there is no choice to be had. You go right to the behavior and there's no space. So that is what it helps with. It helps create this space so that you recognize that you have a choice and you're more mindful in your decision-making. So I also teach a little bit of polyvagal theory where we talk about the window of tolerance and where I I introduce a lot of self-compassion with my clients is to realize that there was a moment where they really didn't have a choice because they didn't have access to the ability to become mindful because they had exceeded their window of tolerance. Maybe you can explain what the window of tolerance is, how that affects choice, and how to recognize and interrupt that and deal with the fact that you've exceeded that. Yeah. You have really incredible questions. I just want you to know. Thank you. (laughs) They're very um, thoughtful. Thank you. I use a lot of, you know, the window of tolerance you're mentioning with my EMDR work, my eye movement desensitization reprocessing work. And it's, and by by the way, polyvagal theory and what you're speaking to is such incredible work and it's so helpful. So I'm so glad that you're mentioning it because a lot of people don't know about it. It's actually a new, newer science, relatively speaking. So good for you (laughs) and for myself too, because I I really value it so much. It's, I'm so happy I stumbled, stumbled upon it. It's a game changer. Yeah, it is a game changer. Total game changer. Completely. So I, I, I feel so, such gratitude that I stumbled upon it, honestly. Window of tolerance. So basically what we're speaking to is that we get aroused, okay? We get activated in our nervous system and our bodies, and we could go into a hyper hype or hyper arousal, okay? 
And when we're in hyper, which could be, again, when you think about the word hyper, it is. It's when you're reactive. It's when your body is activated. It's when all those things are going on for you. Okay. That's not the best time to make decisions. Now, that's, for example, when somebody's in a hyper state or in a very hyper state, it's very hard. I can't do the EMDR therapy with them because, mm-hmm. again, they're not going to be responsive to it because it's, their nervous system has usurped power over their bodies in those moments. If somebody is hypo, that's when the body shuts down. That's when we distance or we cut off or we repress all of those, again, adaptations that we do in order to survive. And again, when I talk about survival, it's avoiding discomfort and also, again, avoiding danger. Now, I say discomfort and danger because that's how the body perceives it. That doesn't mean that you're actually in danger. Your brain thinks you are, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you actually are. So I put it in quotation marks, right? So we really want to be able, because we all go into hypo and hyper, some of us will lean more into hyper. Some of us will lean more into hypo, you know, and again, we don't want extremes, you know, where you're completely overreacting, you're completely shutting down. You know, I know as a child, I could speak for myself. I definitely would, you know, would go into the hypo. I would repress. That's what I would do. And that helped me survive. You know, mm-hmm. I had to learn as an adult how to be in the present moment and be with my feelings. And it's pretty amazing, but I notice. Now, sometimes things don't come to me readily in the moment, but an hour later, when I'm in my meditative practice, boom, it comes up or even a week later or whatever the case is, but it doesn't last months and years like it used to, you know, where all of a sudden I'll be thinking about something like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I, that person mistreated me and, and I completely repressed it. And I didn't set a boundary in the way that I needed to, or whatever the case is. Or I was, you know, you know, I was that be I was engaging in that behavior, which I, you know, if I knew better, I wouldn't, I would have stopped doing a long time ago. You know, I didn't even know, I wasn't even aware at, at how maladaptive that was for me and how it impacted me negatively, for example, right? So we always want to draw back and try to get back to our window of tolerance, which is again midway in between, right? When we're able to be open, when we're able to be flexible, we're able to be curious. So I always say we want to act and want we want to react and interact with curiosity. So for example, let's say a friend hurts you, right? And you're wounded, you feel wounded. And they said something to you that was wounding. Okay. Our mind will be triggered and will be triggered to a place, right? That for whatever reason, exacerbates the feeling we had about ourselves when that specific thought or feeling got evoked. I'm not worthy. Um, I'm not loved. I'm not cared about. I'm rejected. Whatever it is for you, because everybody's different. Okay. We lose, we become that nine-year-old or 10-year-old as opposed to being the adult we are in the moment. Okay. So if we're aware of that, we could actually, again, transpose and bring ourselves to be back in the window of tolerance so we could be with the curiosity. So in terms of the curiosity itself, instead of going to the place of saying, my friend hurt me, she said this to me, and the reason she said this to me is because of this and this, right? It's our narrative, like you said, and, and where we kind of, we tend, it's familiar. It's something that we gravitate towards because of the familiarity and our brain is used to kind of thinking that way and feeling that way. And our brain goes to the path of least resistance. That's what it does. It goes to the easy place that it's familiar with. 
And we could, if we act from a place of curiosity, we could say, and this is the beauty, wow, my friend said something to me. I wonder what she meant. I wonder where that was coming from for her. Wow, I'm so curious about the way I reacted to it. Where did that come from for me, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, the way I see it is when you have exceeded your window of tolerance, either, you know, shutting down or speeding up, you're running on habit, which means there is no creative solution. It's a repeat of the past for sure. And so to speak to the power of choice, what do we all want is we all want to be free and have free will and be able to change our destiny and not have our future be just a trajectory of our past. And so the power of choice is for us to choose how we want to show up. And when you've exceeded your window of tolerance, you're running a program at that point, a subconscious reaction. Mm -hmm. And so can you speak to some of the mindfulness practices that you have seen successful with clients where what it sounds like in your head, in the moment to realize that you've exceeded your window of tolerance and you have you will not have a choice if you don't change the way you respond with the space that you're talking about. Can you dialogue with the self-narrative of what that might look like with some simple tools? Sure. So it comes for, up for us all the time. It, it does for most people. And it's a work in progress. So whatever you give power to, you strengthen. And that's a really important lesson. So if we have a specific narrative of I'm not worthy or whatever the case is, if we keep on behaving in ways that make us feel that way or that puts us in a position of tapping into that thought of lack of worthiness because we're not reaching our potential, we're underperforming, whatever the case is, we're going to strengthen that belief. And that becomes petrified. That becomes a belief that we walk, talk, and behave with, okay? So we always have to, it's contraindicated, right? We always have to challenge ourselves both to see that thought is just a thought. It doesn't really mean anything, okay? And also that we can and could choose to behave differently, which then could reinforce a whole different set of thoughts and feelings about ourselves. And the more that we exhibit and act on behalf of our best self, we will act on behalf of our best self. And I could give you many personal examples and many examples from my practice, but I see so such substantial and incremental change in the patients I work with. It's, it's mind-blowing, like literally mind-blowing. You know, just as an example, there's a person that I'm working with right now, and I've worked with him for, you know number of years. But when I first started seeing him, interestingly enough, I started seeing him in high school, which is a long time ago. And he had such substantial and tremendous social anxiety. It was crippling in a way where his relationships would be very on the surface and he would not get into deep, intimate relationships because of his fear and his negative self-talk. So he would hold back. And you know, it's it's interesting because when you're sitting with somebody, you get to see the real them, right? And in some ways, it's a little jarring because I sit there and I say to myself, he is like the most adorable, charming, lovely, warm, thoughtful human. I don't know how everyone else doesn't see this. 
But I also get that he doesn't let anybody see him. Mm. He actually holds himself in secrecy and he doesn't allow people to actually see who he is and how he is, which is really sad if you think about it. So again, I've been working with him for many years today. I'm happy to say he's in his late 20s. He has a full-time job. He lives in New York City. He has incredibly connected relationships. He's dating right now. I mean, wow. <laughs> and the, the level of confidence, the level of confidence, that's the most important piece, is literally heartwarming. And I'll give you an example with him. This past week when I was seeing him in my practice, there was a, a female who he was in high school with that literally used to treat him, I don't know how to say it, but disrespectfully. You know, mm -hmm. she would expect him to always reach out to her. You know, she would always lead the conversation and he would have no space in the conversation. And I could go on and on, you know, in terms of her behavior. And he would complain about it. He would feel really sad about it because he knew he was taken advantage of. He knew that she wasn't really kind of respecting his boundaries. on, But he felt powerless to do anything about it because this was his one, like almost one and only friend. And he didn't want to give up on that friendship, no matter what he was willing to take whatever he got because he valued at least having her friendship. It's so interesting over the years, you know, cause it's what's going to happen with her over the years. He's slowly and incrementally set boundaries with her this past week that, you know, they lost touch a little bit. They haven't been talking for a long time. And then all of a sudden she reached out to him. And he said to me, I don't know that I want to get close to her, to be honest with you, because she didn't treat me well. And I don't know how she's going to continue treating me. And like, why should I bother? So I said, you know what? It's kind of taking the easy way out because that would require you not expressing yourself. That would require you not working through. I don't care that you make the decision not to be friends with her. Totally okay. But do your due diligence. Okay, if you're left with regret and shame and whatever else, you're not doing yourself any favors. Okay, so if you decide to leave the relationship, do it with dignity, you mm -hmm. know? So he decided, you know, based on our conversation, and we actually role played how he might express himself and set boundaries and everything. Anyway, he ended up meeting with her, which I was so proud of him because he really was inclined to just kind of break off the relationship. And it was amazing what he came back with. She ended up doing something again, you know, in their interaction that signified, again, this old habit that she had of mistreating him. He nipped it in the bud. I mean, like he sat there and he said, he goes, this is the way you used to treat me. Okay. I did not have a good sense of self-worth. I did not set the, set the boundaries that I needed to at the time. I have a sense of self-worth and I will not entertain that in my life. And in order for us to be in a relationship, this is what needs to happen. You know, and he said to her, it's perfectly okay. If you feel that's not something that you could abide by in our relationship, I will completely understand, but this is what I need. Whoa. I mean, it, he wasn't like, oh my goodness, I need to do whatever I need to do because I'm going to lose this friendship. And then, right? No, because he has friends and he knows his worth. And he asserted himself in such a dignified, incredible way. And you know what he said to me at the end? He said, I don't know what she's going to do with it all. And he's, you know what? I'm totally okay with it. He was wow. in such a different space. 
And again, I took a moment and I sat with him and I said, let's take a moment. Do you recognize the person you are? So he said, what do you mean? I said, I want you to go back, way back from when I first started seeing you. And I want you to reflect on who you are today. And he became very emotional. You know, he became very emotive. And he said to me, I said, you never would have done what you did today years back. It wouldn't even cross your mind. And even if I gave you that directive, you would not have been able to follow through. Do you recognize that in yourself? And he's, yeah. And I said, how does that feel in your body? How does that feel in your mind? Why did I ask him to go to his body? Why did I ask him to go to his mind? Because again, it's the oxytocin and it's the, you know, all the things that go on that lead us into the space of wanting that more, wanting to feel proud of ourselves, wanting to feel a sense of efficacy, wanting us to feel a sense of self-belief and self-pride and self-compassion and all of those beautiful, wonderful things that we deprive ourselves of. And his body is going to remember that so that in the future, when he acts on behalf of leaning into his value of friendship and dignity and self-worth, he's going to want to replicate those feelings and those thoughts. And that is like magic. Yeah. I mean, learning is, it requires a desire for something you don't want. And then in order to learn, you have to experience and the motivation, the dopamine is fueled by evidence of progress, which is where all of us perfectionists, all or nothing, black or white thinkers get into trouble because we think we need to beat ourselves up and crack the whip and acknowledge all of our faults and lead with, you know, all the things we did wrong and try to fix what's broken when in fact, what you just said. I mean, that's one of the most powerful things I do with clients as well. And it seems so simple as a technique, but every time somebody brings me a problem, I always stop and orient them to where they are in the change process. You know, you can only rise to the level of problems you can solve. Look at the problem you're solving right now and how far you've come. And it's not just blowing smoke up people's rear ends. I mean, it is, that is how the brain wires with the experience. And then it wants to repeat it because the desire is there to feel that way again. That's how that works. And just to piggyback what you said, we also have a very antiquated way of behavioral change, right? That has changed a lot over the years. And we used to believe in negative reinforcement. Okay. Like beating the whip, like you said, like I have to make the person feel so, so horrible about themselves that they'll want to change. Actually, We know from research, we know from research, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It actually, if anything, right? If anything, it puts us in a position where we don't act. There's inaction because of a low sense of our self-confidence. And I always use this example, right? With a child, if a child, right, feels that they're not worthy, right? And that they don't have a sense of self-efficacy, they're not going to perform because they're going to expect that they'll fail, right? So you always want to, again, you want to reinforce somebody's strengths so that they feel a sense, again, and in terms of the self-compassion piece, which you mentioned, which is a very integral part of what I speak to, also my book, is we don't learn skills to be self-compassionate. We, and our brain is wired 
<laughs> to be negative, okay, and to be hard on us and to have negative self-belief. So we have to work hard. We have to work hard to counter our brain spinning us into a space of having all these negative. And why does our brain do that? Because, you know, people always ask me, especially people who have like intense anxiety. And I work with a lot of people who have intense anxiety. They'll say, why does my brain do that? I don't understand it. And I said, good for your brain. Let's applaud your brain. You know what your brain is trying to do? I always tell them, what is your brain trying to do? You know, because when, when they come to me, they're like, oh, you know, my brain. I said, what is your brain trying to do? So I teach them. So they say to me, my brain is trying to protect me. Yes. Because your brain believes that if it beats you up enough, that you are going to perform. Just like, again, people use negative self-talk for motivation, right? If I said, if I tell myself, I'm going to fail the test, I'm going to fail the test, I'm going to fail the test, then I'll study. So I tell people, I'm like, okay, do you really think, do you really honestly think that if you don't tell yourself, I'm going to fail a test, I'm going to fail a test, I'm going to fail a test, that you won't study? Is that, is that true? Let's take a moment. Let's think about that. <laughs> Knowing uh, what an overachiever you are and how vigilant your mind is and how overprotective your mind is. Do you actually think that you're going to listen to that? So I said, okay, go home. Don't study. Don't, don't study. Don't bother. And they're like, they're, they crack up. They're like, oh my God, of course I'm not going to. I'm like, exactly. You don't have to beat yourself up. You're going to do it anyway. And you're going to end up actually doing better because you're going to have more self-belief rather than beating yourself up. So in terms of the self-compassion, we have to learn skills and tools in order to be self-compassionate. And it doesn't come readily to hardly anybody I know. Okay. Even for myself, I actually have to take a pause. I have to take a minute, you know, and I do that. And sometimes I'll even, I do exercises in the mirror. I do a lot of mirror exercises, which mm -hmm. are fascinating. And I'll look at myself because when we look in the mirror, we don't look at ourselves. You know, we'll see, oh, does, you know, how do I look? How's my hair? But we don't look into our eyes. We don't see a human being. We don't see compassion. We don't see humanity. We don't see sensitivity and love and nurturance. We don't see all that. If you really look at yourself in the mirror, it's, it's actually uncomfortable mm -hmm. right? because it's like, oh my goodness, another human staring at me and they could see through me. They see me, they know me, right? It's very vulnerable. But sometimes I'll look at myself and when I'm having a moment, and this happened to me yesterday, actually, and I looked at myself and I'm like, you're okay. You got this. You're actually okay. You're in pain. You're in pain. Let's own that. Let's feel that. Let's feel into it, right? But you are okay. You're gonna be fine. And wow, like, of course, tears came rolling down my eyes after I said that to myself, yeah. you know, and I had that moment, but I was able to recalibrate and I was able to realign with my values. And that's always at the core of behavior is really connecting to your values. So once I was able to tap into my compassion, once I was able to tap into who I want to be and who I am foundationally, then I was able to have clarity of reconnecting to my values and behaving in response to that. Yeah, I think it's so important to understand what your values are and who you are. And you just cannot know that if you are beating yourself up. 
you know, that self-relationship is the foundation of everything. We don't perform for people that beat us up. We hide. And to pull it back to our window of tolerance talk, how do you feel when someone's speaking bad mm -hmm. of you and threatening you or putting you down? You, mm -hmm. It ups your stress level. So Completely. your own talk you know, perpetuates the cycle of stress that eliminates the choices you have. And if there was one thing I would, I would want people to know, it's like the way you speak to yourself is a hundred percent important for you moving forward. You just simply cannot achieve your vision or figure out your values until you're willing to treat yourself with the same dignity. Like I talk about self-care as being, you're taking care of a body and you got to be as I learned this in couples therapy with my first husband where yeah. they said, be as nice to each other as you would a stranger in the grocery store. And I was like, fuck that guy. I'm not being, and then we put that into yeah. practice. Now I bring that into coaching and I'm like, be as nice and polite to yourself. Don't leave your dishes in the sink. Say, thank you. You know, I, I walk into my room. I'm like, oh, Colleen made my bed. Thanks, Colleen. Like I just have this dialogue with myself and I feel like that is what has allowed me you know, all of the mind, like I'm mindful of the way I speak to myself mm -hmm. and I am, I look in the mirror and I treat myself like I would a polite stranger. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. We have the longest relationship with ourselves. Okay. We are with ourselves 24 seven. It is the most formative, important relationship you will ever have. Plus the way we treat ourselves is the way we're going to treat other people. That's just the way it is. You know, if we believe in ourselves and if we give ourselves self-respect, we are going to res be respectful towards other people as well. You know, there's a natural relationship that we have. And often, unfortunately, A, we don't learn how to have relationships with ourselves because we only learn how to have relationships with other people. You know, there's right. no trans transcribe, you know, what way to learn that. And we only cultivate it over time. And the way that we, again, the way that we treat ourselves and on every level, whether it's the way we speak to ourselves, the way that our self-care is modeling, it's, it gives information for the outside world on how to treat you and how to speak with you and how to behave towards you. You know, I take, I mean, I take pride in my self-care. I exercise religiously. I eat right. You know, I take my health extremely seriously. But that is how I treat people that I interact with, you know, with literally, you know, tender, loving care, because I love people. And I, I could say I love myself and I don't love myself in an arrogant way, because I always also say right. there's a big difference between being arrogant and being confident. Yeah. And it's so beautiful to be confident. Such a beautiful thing when you see somebody, when they have a sense of pride about who they are and let me say, it doesn't come easy. Everything that I do, everything that I do, I put effort and time and energy into. And it only gets cultivated over time. It's not instantaneous either. Yeah. You know, when we're trying to live a life that's meaningful, and, you know, one thing I have to say, I've seen over, listen, just because of the work I do, I see a lot of travesties. I see trauma, travesties. I mean, Listen, I, I mean, I could just tell you this coming Monday, I'm going to a friend's ceremony that she's having for her child, 
her only child who just died, mm-hmm. you know, a teenager. I mean, what could be worse than that? Honestly. And this was something that happened within a day, within one day, unexpected. Nobody ever could predict such a horrible tragedy ever, you know, and I know for myself, things happen and I'm like, what just happened? You know, I put my head, hands on my head and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, and I just had the anniversary of my nephew's death. He died a day shy of his 16th birthday. You know, I just had the anniversary the other day. So we can't underestimate how every single day is precious and how anything could happen in a moment. The only thing we know is what's happening right here, right now in this moment. We don't know what's going to happen in five minutes from now. We don't know what's going to happen in an hour, in a month, in a year, and so forth. So every moment counts. (laughs) And if you are perpetually living in the present moment and living and abiding and connecting to your values, you will hopefully die whenever that is with a smile on your face. And that is where life is at. You know, you want to be done with a smile on your face. You know, people do ask me sometimes, and I think about this, if you died tomorrow, how would you feel? And I, of course I said, that would be really sad because, you know, I want to live and I want to see my children have, I want grandchildren and whatever else. I said, but you know what? I'd be okay. I feel like every moment I'm on this planet, I'm accomplishing what I want to. Not to say that I'm the perfect person and that I've done everything in my life that I've wanted to because there's still much more I want to do. But up till now, yes, I have done everything that I have wanted to. And I've done it meaningfully and purposefully and intentionally and with tremendous amount of effort and willingness to be uncomfortable. That is the most important thing because nothing comes easy. Nothing. Yeah. I really like what you said. It was one little word and it was how it doesn't come easy. And I don't know if you said it or I thought it, but this is a skill and anybody can learn and it doesn't happen overnight. But the most important thing to realize is if you don't have a good relationship with yourself and you recognize that you have negative dialogue and, you know, stressed out body, that there are things you can do and there are skills that you can learn and one at a time. I feel like I've got thousands of tools right now. Mm -hmm. And four years ago, I was drinking a bottle of vodka a night. I mean, you can go a long way pretty quickly. So as we wrap this up, would you plug your book, Ace Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self and Live the Life That You Want and explain, you know, what's in there and why we might want to read it? I have a copy right here. Nice. (laughs) Yes. It's my colors. I love purple and teal. (laughs) So ACE, yeah, it's ACE Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self and Live the Life You Want. And ACE stands for Acceptance, Compassion, and Empowerment. And I'll just tell you the structure of the book because that speaks for really what it is. It has, first of all, a lot of exercises to integrate skills. And it also, at the end of each chapter, has a guided meditation. I record guided meditations every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. on my YouTube channel of, on all different topics. So it has a scan, a code, you know, a QR code that you could just kind of scan. So the way that it's broken up is the first chapter talks about our neurobiology and our thinking, right? The second chapter talks about values and it's an entire chapter on chapter on values. And it teaches you how to understand what your core values are, which is, I I would say that is the most important chapter in the entire book. Honestly, that is what's changed my life. And that really predicates all of the work that I do. 
And then I break it up into acceptance, compassion, empowerment. The first chapter of each talks about the barriers to each. What are the barriers to acceptance? What are the barriers to compassion? What are the barriers to uh, empowerment? And the second parts of those chapters is how, again, to facilitate and, you know, and integrate those skills in your, you know, into your life. And there are exercises in each chapter to help you to do that. It's really a guidebook. So these are skills I teach to people of all different ages. And I love teaching it to younger, you know, to kids, to teenagers, because it sets them up for living a meaningful life. And they say to me, I love it. You know, I'll I'll talk to them, these like college students, and they'll be like, I didn't quite lean into my values this week. I did, you know, and I'm like, yes, you know, or I had a little bit of a value conflict, you know, or whatever the case is. My applied values didn't quite hit my ideal values. There was a little gap next week. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And also when we, there's pain and values in pain. And that is also a really important lesson. Like when we feel pain, we know it's rubbing up against a value. Mm. Yes. And Mm. if something rubs up against our value, we're going to feel pain. So instead of getting down on yourself, what I teach people to do is to connect to how proud they are that they have these set of values. So it Mm -hmm. actually changes your mindset and you have a different relationship both with yourself and your decision making proves exponentially because of it. So yeah. it's a really, it's reframing the way you think about things, about life. And like I said, I use it in my life every single moment and it substantially, re- you know, helped me in so many, I mean, I could, like I said, I could sit here. The other thing, which I did with the book, which people really appreciate, it's very research-based. So for people who really appreciate the research, you have that there. Yeah. Um, and I interweave throughout the book you know, personal anecdotes and also, you know, for my client practice. It just so happens while I was writing the book, one of my closest friends, you know, was dying of lung cancer and it just happened that way. You know, I used some stories of, you know, from my experience with her and there was one experience with her, particularly around values that, you know, that I have to mention because it was so powerful. She was a, a woman of very strong dignity and, you know, when we would have long talks before she died and she told me once I'm not capable of really speaking and kind of having like full cognition, I don't want anybody to visit me. Like I'm done. I don't want my, ch- she, by the way, she, seven children. Could you imagine? Seven children. I've had seven. I've had four and three stepkids. So I have seven. Yes. Wow. Okay. So I have to, all the power to you. <laughs> Because I, I, yeah, I was like, wow. <laughs> anyway, so she said to me, she said, you know, when my, when I'm at that stage, that's it. I don't want my kids around. I don't want my family around. I don't want you around. I'm nobody. So I remember I went to go see her and she wasn't feeling well. And she told the, you know, the person who was helping her tell her to go away. I'm not seeing her. And I was so heartbroken. And I called her as I was driving and I said, her name was Selma. And I said, Selma, please, can I see you just once more? Please. I just, I have so much to say to you. She said, no, sweetie. She said, you said it all. You said everything you needed to say. I love you. And that was my last conversation with her. And I was like in tears because I was like, no, 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 I, please. You know, yeah. she would not. Anyway, 
she died subsequently. And I remember I was visiting, actually, one of my sons was applying for colleges and we were doing a college visit and we were like walking around and I got a call from her son, one of her sons and said that she died. And I said, oh, you know, is there going to be moral service, this or that? And he said, no, she wants to be cremated, whatever. And I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you didn't get to see her, you know, before she's, what are you talking about? So I said, oh, you did? So he said, yeah. He said, I said, what do you mean? He's, oh, she was surrounded by her loved ones. She actually knew that she was going to die. And she asked each one of us to come in the room and we had a chance to say goodbye to her and this and that and whatever. Wow. So this is, this was the thing. I had a conversation with her literally before she died. And I said to her, you're having a conflict in values. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, Selma, there's a part of you that believes in your pride, right? In the way you look and the way you feel. Okay. And that's a very formative value of yours. And then parenting is another very formative value. I said, in every circumstance, we have to consider which value is going to take precedence, which is going to be more meaningful in that moment. And I said, you have a choice you could make. I understand what you want and what you're thinking right now. Totally. Okay, cool. But I want to put it in a context by which you could really think about this. Okay. She tapped into her parenting values. And I really do believe it's because of our conversation. I, I do. I, I believe she would not have really considered that or thought about that. And I wrote in the what book, I wrote in the book, in one of the chapters, I was so proud of her. I was I, like, I wish I could tell her how proud I am of her, that when it came to the end, that she was able to really consider how does she want to leave this earth? How does she want to leave this planet? And value does she want to lean into? And she did it. She freaking did it. And I was like beaming, I have to tell you. She stuck the landing. She did. She did. And she gave such, and I explained this to her, she gave such a gift to her kids because her kids didn't care how she looks. I mean, her kids didn't care. Who cares? You know, her kids just wanted to see her and she gave them the opportunity for closure and to say goodbye and to feel so connected to her and like amazing that she had the wherewithal and she was able to make that choice in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's the power of mindfulness, realizing we have a choice. There you go. You stuck the landing. So I really appreciate you being here and I can't wait to get the book and I appreciate your time. Is there anything else that I didn't ask or that you wanted to share, like contact or anything? No, my website is the best place to find me. It's my first and last name.com. I'm a Psychology Today blogger, so I periodically write articles and I have a big readership. So I encourage everybody. It's on all different topics self-help, parenting, advocacy. I mean, it's vast, but a lot of it is on self-help, you know, more of the mindfulness-based self-help. And then I have the YouTube channel, like I said, feel free to download, you know, if you subscribe, you could get a free, you know, guided meditation every Thursday in your inbox, which is exciting. And then again, I'm always happy to hear feedback. I know it's been really helpful for many people and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I see that the change it makes and I just really want to help people. That's where my heart is. Yeah, I can tell. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was so nice to meet you. All right. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please share it either with a friend or on your socials or forward it in some way. You can also rate on Apple or Spotify or leave a review. The more you engage with this show, the more the algorithm recommends it to people like yourself with similar interests. So I thank you in advance for taking the time to help support the show by sharing the show one way or the other. 
And I will be back next week with an interview I am so excited about. So I just found a new podcast myself called The Alcohol Minimalist with Molly Watts. And we had a swap. So she's going to be on my show. I'm going to be on her show. And I'm excited to introduce her to you because I think you're going to find her podcast to be an excellent resource as well. She does not teach abstinence as the cure for alcohol use disorder. And she has a story unlike mine where she never did even an extended period of sobriety. And so the interview with her, she walks us through her process of change and what she found and what worked best for her. And it just will give you a whole other perspective as far as what your options are. There truly is no right way to recover. And Molly is a science geek like me. By the time I finished our two-hour swap interviews, I had ordered three new books and had new facts and statistics that I'm sure I'll be dropping into episodes that are upcoming. So I think you'll really, if you like me, may I recommend Molly Watts. So come back next week and listen to our interview. And also I want to remind you that if you are wanting to jump into working with me, but you want to do it for free and on your own, get in the show notes and click the link to register for my secret podcast. It's not really a podcast. It's a course. It's called The Foundations of Emotional Sobriety, but I set it up with the new secret podcast technology to make it really simple and easy to consume. You don't have to log into my website. All you have to do is download the podcast feed into your whatever podcast player you use and hit play. And I walk you through, I think, eight different modules. They're about eight to 10 minutes each of the different skills for the basics of emotional sobriety. You'll walk away with self-coaching tools and strategies to regulate your nervous system in real time as well as an introduction to thought models, which is basically how you're able to turn emotional problems into math problems and solve for X, X being your own bullshit. So get in the show notes and get started there. And I will see you next week. Thanks again for listening.